0: Now, I'm really excited to have with me in the studio, Stuart Kells, who is a historian and an author, and he's written a book called The Convent, A City Finds Its Heart, and um, it's all referring to an amazing landmark and associated area in Melbourne, the Abbotsford Convent, uh, of which Stuart is a board member of that convent. Um, And uh, Stuart has done some fascinating research into it for this book, which has just been released through Melbourne University uh, Publishing. And he's also um, drawn on some other scholars in his field, including the wonderful Catherine Carvasi, who I've just had the pleasure of hearing from Talk About the Renaissance. So uh, what a delightful area to be researching. Uh, Welcome Stuart now. Hi there.
1: Hi Amy, great to be here.
0: Great to have you in the studio. Um, Let's first up talk about how one gets to a point of writing a history of the Abbotsford Convent.
1: So I, I knew aspects of the story even 20 years ago, I was on the fringes of the campaign and some of the government work in thinking about what would happen with the convent um, and I knew aspects of the story just from being, you know, living in inner Melbourne and, and going to the, to the area and I was invited to join the board um, about five years ago um, for a few different reasons and so I've been involved with the convent over that period as a board member and in various different committee roles. And as part of the convent community, and in that context, um, the 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 thought came up of doing a book. Um, there hadn't been a, a sort of thorough history of the site. The Catherine Kavazis had done that wonderful history of the, the order of the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, and that was the full uh, history of the order in this part of the world. But no one had written a uh, history specifically about the the Abbotsford convent.
0: It's amazing to think that that hadn't been written yet, Mm. given its significance.
1: Yes. Yes, there's been a few different sort of um, sort of short history pieces and, and articles and things, but um, the thing about the convent is that it has those layers of history. It has the indigenous importance of that site, then the early um, uh, sort of European uh, farmlets on the on the Abbotsford Peninsula, the convent era and then the, um, the, the the modern era. So, um, yeah, it was a really interesting experience delving into the, the all of those different histories all centred around one place.
0: Mm. It is um, really so interconnected, isn't it, those different threads? And mm. it comes through in the book because, you know, so many things, so many themes and stories are interconnected that it isn't um, a straight chronicle. Uh, it's not a from start to finish uh, timeline of the history of Abbotsford Convent. It's beautifully kind of interweaved.
1: I've, I've tried to do that and there are recurring patterns and recurring moments. So a lot of what the um, early days of the the convent were about in the 1860s was making it viable and and, and you know, basically paying their way and, and um, making their own space. And that was very much the same uh, in the early days of, of it being a community arts and culture precinct in the in the um, in the 2000s about making it viable and building a uh, constituency around it. So those sorts of patterns have recurred, and also just issues of land use and agriculture on the site. It was a, it was a farm during the convent era. Obviously, the children's farm still there today, um, but the, during the convent era. The, the nuns and, and the inmates used that as their larder. Before then, it was one of the earliest uh, land releases in, in Melbourne. Um, and even before that, there's a, a very long history of, of Indigenous people using this as, as an important site for, for food and, and for culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a crossing place at the Yarra River just above Dykes Falls. There was a cultural boundary between different groups. So uh, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of heritage attached to the site.
0: Yes, and the Yarra River has such a significant place in Indigenous mm. history, doesn't it? And given that the Abbotsford Convent is essentially on the banks of it. Yes, really. it's
1: surrounded on three sides by the river and the, river, the history of the river is the history of the convent. Very much um, the taming of the Yarra through diversion and through dams upstream has really changed the way that that part of the, the river works. I mean, during the convent era, uh, they were regularly flooded out. So they spent a lot of time beautifully terracing and building out gardens and things, and then every few years it was all washed away in spectacular fashion, uh, even, even to the point of threatening some of the main buildings. Wow. And there were all sorts of you know, grand plans over the years of what to do on the river, having pleasure cruises, um, one one proposal was to straighten the era between there and heidelberg and then use the um the um, remaining um, riverbed as, as as a gold mine uh, so there's all sorts of different mad plans
0: typical isn't it to got have the economic goals <laughs> that's right <laughs> motivations
1: well that's very much the the background to this story because yeah. the modern campaign was, was against that kind of kennett era proposal of of you know, monetizing and privatizing that uh, what what had become very much a community asset mm. and and the reaction to that and and the um the steps taken by the community and others to um, protect the site
0: Yes, and there had been in those early years of the 19th century uh, properties built on that site before we got to the convent. Yes. Um, And there were a lot of prominent uh, Melburnians who had, I guess, colonised that spot essentially. Um,
1: It was one of the first areas that was was settled that way, that's
0: right. Is it any surprise really given its location, its Mm. very special location?
1: It was very picturesque yeah. and very fertile land, obviously being right on the river and the nice. It's it's a it's a very pretty spot with that natural amphitheatre um, created by the banks on the other side, uh, particularly of, of the river, um, and yeah, it's one of the the most prized areas even today of, of parklands and and of a um, bushland. And so it's, it's not a surprise that people uh, settled there. And it was a very, um, it was the, sort of the toorak of the, of the um, sort of inner northeast uh, in its day. And there were these little gentlemen farmlets uh, owned uh, by MPs and, and uh, you know, wealthy merchants. Uh, that quickly changed. And in the, in the gold rush era, it was um, much more a, um, a working class suburb. And obviously into the, the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, it was a bit of a, um, you know, a, a struggle town sort of area. Uh, and that was very important uh, in relation to the location and the mission of, of mm. the convent.
0: Yes, well, the population in Melbourne uh, grew and it also Mm. flowed between the city and the country, as you've said, because of the gold rush Mm. and also it led to fracturing of relationships uh, and also it meant that there was a real difficulty for some of those um, people, particularly women needing to be able to support themselves if they found themselves not married um, and also potentially orphaned. Um, And you describe some of the women who uh, really were struggling in this era and uh, and quote Catherine's work when she's discussing the types of women who had quote unquote fallen Mm. uh, in this era. And um, I was particularly interested that that was the reason why we or the the local kind of religious groups wanted to seek out the Sisters of the Good Shepherd in particular, because mm. there were already nuns and priests in Melbourne. That wasn't necessarily um, there wasn't a, a market that was you know missing. That there there were certainly religious denominations, but there were. There was, I guess, a lack of uh, denominations supporting these women who had "quote unquote" fallen from grace and had uh, questionable virtues, mm. um, and uh, and I, that was what I particularly found fascinating: is that motivation. Can you share with us what made the Sisters of the Good Shepherd such an important decision, a choice?
1: So in that era, the the 1850s and the 1860s, there was a real boom in the urban poor um, and people uh, being forced into, um, you know, uh, sex work and, and crime... Um, there were uh, there was an influx of, of migration, uh, including uh, from from Ireland of of um, people who who um, joined the urban poor, poor. Um, and yeah there were fracturings of of um, families uh, when people went off to the goldfields and um, you know, all sorts of different um, social problems caused by that incredible growth in the population in that time. Um, the the city itself turned into a bit of a a wild Place and there's that famous little lawn with the brothels and, yeah. and the kind of you know kids sort of grimy kids in the street and all that sort of stuff. So there was a real need uh, for a um, for, for social uh, services and for outreach. And the way that was done in those days was through through charities like this. The Sisters of the Good Shepherd, in particular, had a uh, an ethos of of Openness; they were um, they didn't apply this sort of concept that you had to be a member of the deserving poor. Uh, they were happy uh, to take any kind of poor, uh, including um, people who uh, had been sent there, uh, who essentially were criminals or who were um, children of, of people who'd been um, charged with crimes. Um, that concept of fallen women was a very broad one in that time, uh, and it included uh, people who um, were pregnant outside of marriage. Uh, people who were wayward in all sorts of different kind of subjective um, senses. so it was a, a, a very broad uh, um, definition the so the sisters were, were taking all of the, all people from all sorts of different um, situations but also the idea of becoming a nun was uh, in some senses a professional option for women um, and I've, I've researched other uh, religious orders as well, and this is something that people don't sort of think a lot about that in a time when, it, when professional work and mainstream work was barred to women, and mm. um, this was a way to actually, you know, um, progress and to, to do social service work and to do other sorts of professional work. And there's a really strong theme um, in the history of the convent of of women uh, doing running the place, all doing all sorts of other um, managerial and and even engineering type tasks uh, electrical work and and um, yeah, agricultural work uh, as well as uh, traditional crafts and, and work like lace making and that kind of thing so um th- there's all sorts of different things happening at the convent that are about the world of society and the world of work mm. um, and it do- does fulfill that really important um, social uh, function that wasn't really um met by other institutions
0: yeah and it It does sound, as you say, that it was a very open and non-judgmental environment in the sense that these nuns were not discriminating against who gets their support or help and who doesn't.
1: Yeah, there's a real paradox there, though, because they did have this openness Mm. um, and they, they would take pretty much all comers. Uh, with some some small exceptions. Um, But once inside, um, the the nuns, among other things, were influenced by a 19th-century concept of contamination um, where um, there was a fear that social ills could pass through contact, a bit like the coronavirus. Uh, And so there was this uh, very, very strong effort made to compartmentalise and to quarantine different types of inmates and, and residents uh, so the reformatory children were separate from the industrial children who were separate from the mainstream school children. Mm. Um, the Magdalens were separate from the novices uh, and those kinds of things. And even to the extent where um, during worship in church they were separate areas of of the church and people didn't engage that much across the different categories Um, and there are other um, uh, principles that the nuns applied Uh, so there wasn't a lot of uh, support for people at a personal level people were discouraged from talking about their life before they entered the convent and, and they,
0: they had new names, didn't they? They
1: gave them new names. Yeah. And even uh, the Magdalens were encouraged to um, cut off their hair as a, as a sort of a symbol of uh, giving themselves to this new life. Uh, and if they didn't cut off their hair, they had to wear a certain type of hat. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there, there was all, all sorts of different ways that it really took over their lives. And you can imagine people have come from very, very difficult circumstances, uh, you know, teen pregnancies and all sorts of things, and then going into this very stark, um, uh, you know, uh, almost like a workhouse Mm. where there wasn't a lot of um, there wasn't any emotional support Um, you weren't allowed to talk about the experience you had you know, a few days ago, and so um, on the one hand it was a very open and, and supportive uh, institution, but on the other hand uh, there was this coldness and, and this real sort of stark existence for people once inside.
0: Yeah, um, that's a somewhat not surprising to me given the, the way that religion was done in the 19th century. There weren't mm. all that many who were truly open and in every way non-judgmental in practice.
1: I think there were all sorts of different personalities in the nuns. Some yeah. were warmer, and some were colder. But it was very much the philosophy and the rule of the order to to have that very mm, austere mm. sort of sort of existence. And it wasn't until the '60s and the '70s that that was revisited, and and the order thought about different modes of, of care and support, including going out into the community and and um, really, yeah changing the way that they interacted with people.
0: Yeah, and it reminded me that uh, the founder of the Sisters of the Good Shepherd over in France was very insistent that the architecture and the fact of separating out the certain segments of that population was essential and also that there needed to be a place of quiet Mm. and separation from the rest of society
1: that's when when they first saw the um, abbotsford peninsula their first reaction was yeah this is the place mm. because it did have that potential for self-sufficiency because once people were inside they really were you know closed off behind the wall literally behind a wall and it does have that potential in that space for quiet contemplation and even today you go there and you do feel like you're a million miles from the city yeah and it has that real kind of closed feel
0: it does and uh, it is Catholic, they are Catholic nuns um, mm. and I was really interested in your comparison point between the Sisters of Mercy and their uniform and then the Sisters of a Good Shepherd's <laughs> uniform. Um, mm. Having observed the school uniforms of schools that are Sisters of Mercy based I felt it may have been a commentary <laughs> <laughs> and, and a theme that is still ongoing today in terms of the different fashion choices and uh, level of sombre tone that the Outfits, kind of displayed.
1: Yeah, it's interesting when the when the um, the sisters of the Good Shepherd first came to Melbourne, they were seen as this incredibly glamorous. Uh, you know, they had the, the crosses and the hearts and, and a bit of colour in their in their um, habits and in their in their. Um, uh, garments and so it was this sort of wow that, that's a french order come to <laughs> melbourne it, it was very fashionable and very exotic um but life in the convent though wasn't wasn't quite like that
0: yes and uh it's also i mean lots of people know that it's kind of a very bushlandy type area and there's so much nature around given it's right near the Arrow river as you go mm. along um but at the in those early days they recount, and you've quoted there some of their diary entries and letters about the fact that there are snakes everywhere, possums, kangaroos, you know, like spiders mm. in the whole place. I mean, it sounds like it was quite a wild and um, scary place for anyone to be grouped together in with no electricity.
1: The, the sisters' accounts of those very first nights in... in um in Abbotsford are incredible, and it's literally you know quolls running over the roof or across <laughs> the verandah or even inside, you know wallabies and possums and and lizards and snakes and all sorts of things uh, around, and yeah, just you yeah, know that, that unfamiliar sound of the Australian bush. You know, the, the cockatoos and the kookaburras and the bellbirds. Um, it was a very exotic and mm. remote place that they'd come to, and yeah, the buildings had been even in those days, even when in 1863 when they moved into to Abbotsford House, it had been vacant for a few years, and so there were spiders and lizards and all sorts of things inside. <laughs> and so um, even today there are um, elements of that on site. So in the in the 90s during the campaign. Um, when the the um, the buildings were essentially derelict again, um, there was there was you know, a, a, um, a reoccupation of the buildings by possums and bats and things, and then when it was you know, re- reopened to to the community, there was a a big effort to to um, again sort of push back nature a little bit mm. but on the site uh, you do see you still still see possums and and blue tongue lizards and and uh, interesting things in the river among other things
0: yeah and uh, you did remark upon the fact that um, the abbotsford convent is very much a rare example of the type of architecture and structure and functional building um, in Victoria and Australia and that it had a very special and important architectural and cultural significance to us as a community.
1: Yes, the the nuns initially tried to replicate that kind of French Gothic style and they're large buildings, it's a large complex and most of it's been preserved and protected Uh, and that's why it's got this recent heritage recognition because it's one of the few large um, conventual or monastic complexes that still exists. Mm. Um, There's all sorts of... Layers to that sort of physical heritage. So, uh, an example is um, using local timbers on some of the interiors. The grains weren't as dark as some European grains that the order were used to, and so they hand painted the timbers to replicate European grains. Those sorts of things, um, and then when it, when um, uh, when the uh, so sort of inmates and and girls were there. There are all sorts of rules about areas where they could go or couldn't go. They couldn't touch the balustrades when they walked down the stairs. Oh my gosh! They weren't allowed that's to go on the balconies. <laughs> all sorts of things like that. The ring, that, that. That gives you a flashback, doesn't it? Yes, it, it does. Um,
0: feeling slightly triggered.
1: And so um when when it's reopened as this is as community asset, you can imagine the feeling of being able to go into all those forbidden places yeah. and go to areas that were that were sort of walled off. So. The physical um, heritage of that site is intertwined with the cultural and emotional heritage mm. that's attached to it as well.
0: Yes, and with such a large um, and yeah imposing building with those little areas of forbidden um, you know access, no doubt it had a lot of mystery, and mm. as you say, it has so many stories and mythologies around that building and the site as well.
1: Everyone's got their own convent stories and I've obviously been collecting them for a while. Uh, People going there at night and trying on leftover costumes and having these sort of parties or, or strange happenings in the gardens and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um... Yeah, there's all of those kinds of um, myths and stories about people, you know, catching, stealing the nuns' chickens and calling them fish with feathers and that kind of thing, going fishing in inverted commas. Doctors
0: but, duelling.
1: Doctors duelling and then getting on at the end. Um, but the the physical side of the... the um, restoration's been amazing because Mm. gradually uh, these derelict buildings have been reopened and something magical's happened and and a good example is the laundry buildings that have recently been um, restored up to up to a level and reopened and reactivated and they're incredible places I mean they're unique places in, in Melbourne for sure they're big buildings big rooms and they have that kind of feeling that yeah, something really, you know, uh, mysterious and interesting happened there. So, mm. so that those kinds of, um, you know, memories and and um, happenings are still attached.
0: Yeah, it's so exciting that there's this really uh, beautiful example of history that we've still got. And as you say, it was very much under threat. Mm. uh, And you were there for part of it as well, which is so great that you've, um, you know, must have met all the key players and certainly the people who established that uh, initial action group of mainly women from the area as well. Mm. Can you share with us that grassroots group of people It started off like a small group and then grew into a very strategic and seems like a very well-organised and, and intelligent group of people in Melbourne.
1: Yes, they, they pulled off something amazing. I mainly met them through the process of, of my contact with the convent mm. and um, writing the book. Uh, I did meet some of the people more on the government side in the early days. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the way it worked was um, in the late 90s, the Urban Land Corporation had, this, had control of the site uh, and they held a tender Um, There was a a property developer who won the tender and was ready to build, you know, 290 or so residential units, which would have meant... gutting the buildings, maintaining the façade, that terrible thing that you see Mm -hmm. in Melbourne where where you've kept the outside but inside all of the heritage is obliterated, so it's sort of pretend heritage. Yes,
0: Um, with massive, you know, skyscrapers skyscrapers on top.
1: It's that kind of stuff Um, and there's a bit of that and also just building towers and townhouses around the edge and building a golf course in the French Meadow and that kind of thing. So as soon as the local residents saw the the, um, letterbox drop um, and they saw the posters and the billboards. Uh, in in about nineteen ninety seven, yep. they said, "No, nah, this is this is really not um, what we had in mind for this site." Um, noting that even when it was derelict, there was still a, a community ownership of, of the area. It was Riverside Parkland. People went inside and took cuttings, played on the old tennis courts and that kind of thing. So uh, very quickly the community and the local residents ac- activated and engaged with the local council and others. They set up uh, an action group. They had meetings, public meetings on, in the car park and and, and um, in town halls and that kind of thing. And very quickly they organised themselves into the Abbotsford Convent Coalition. And um, it's a really critical thing about the campaign that at an early stage, they weren't simply saying no. It wasn't just a yeah. negative thing. They were saying, here's an alternative. So it was a positive message. So they quickly morphed from being um, a we're community action this. thing yeah, yeah, to being a community action group that had an alternative proposal. Mm. But in order to do that, they actually had to become essentially social entrepreneurs and they had to become their own... Uh, development option, and so when um, Australand was exhibiting, you know, d- design options, etc., the the convent coalition were also putting up their own boards with their own alternatives, and so that was a massive shift for them. Yep. And then there was another phase shift where they. They're, legal participants in a planning process, engaging with government, engaging with uh, council hearings, etc. And then obviously uh, in, the, in the more recent times they've had another phase shift to be an actual landlord and, and a um, steward mm. of this site. So yeah. seeing the, the campaign go through those phases was really interesting.
0: And as you say, we're in these, uh, this Kennet era, which uh, I know a lot of people will have different memories about and mm. there are certainly examples where great buildings Um, of architectural significance were destroyed. Mm. Um, I do recall there was a Brutalist building along Flinders Street that was, I think it was like, I can't even remember the name of it. Someone had explained to me what it was and it was just this huge... Brutalist uh, building near Fed Square, and mm. I was shocked and dismayed that it had gone because I am controversially a fan of brutalism.
1: <laughs> don't <laughs> know why. Building, yeah, that's the old SCCV building. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, where Fed Square is now. Exactly. Yeah. And so mm. I just,
0: you know, there's so many of these things that have kind of been lost to time, and unless you were there, you don't have that kind of memory, that institutional memory, whereas the Abbotsford Convent has been one of the great success stories of Melbourne in the sense of you and what you've just said, which is it's an ongoing community-based uh, fantastic organisation that, that has many purposes and many functions and also has that function of protecting, conserving and appreciating its own heritage and and history.
1: Yeah, the um, the convent itself, the physical side of it, is part of old Melbourne and a a version of old Melbourne that's been demolished. I mean, Melbourne CBD was famous for its incredible buildings in the Mm. 19th century and vast numbers of buildings have been pulled down. Um, But also along the river... Um, in the at the time of the campaign in the in the 90s and the early 2000s there wasn't a lot of high-rise or intensive development on the Yarra but if you fast forward to now and you think about what's happening in, on the other side of the river at Abbotsford near IkeA and and in Richmond and um, further up the river um, in Clifton Hill and in at South Bank the amount and South Yarra the amount of intensive development on the river is incredible and so, the idea of preserving some of this river frontage and some of the bushland and some of that um, open space was so prescient at Mm. the time and so important now.
0: And forward thinking, Mm. really.
1: Definitely. Yeah.
0: And um, from your mind, what was the deciding factor in this group winning and and Getting over the line in terms of the campaign, which, you know, they brought and looped in so many people who could provide that positive vision, and a great alternative. What brought Abbotsford Convent to us now, how it is now?
1: I think a whole bunch of different things. One of the key threads was stamina. They stuck with it for eight years. Uh, some, some of them, like Joe Joe Kinross, is one of the key campaigners. Some of the people in the campaign made it their full time job for for many of those years. Um, they brought to bear all sorts of different. Uh, areas of expertise, so it was, it was community, uh, it was financial, legal, uh, um, artistic expertise, heritage architects, all sorts of different um, professional backgrounds. Yeah. They approached it in a very um, systematic and formal way, so they took minutes, they had rosters, they um, really, you know took the project itself very seriously and they engaged in a really deep way with the community so they had regular um tables at supermarkets and on the bike path um and uh, they had posters all around um Mm. so they're engaging in that way they're engaging through the media with radio and and in, in newspapers they were regularly engaging with government at all levels they deliberately made the campaign apolitical because they were worried if they attached themselves to one particular political party, then they'd be an obvious target for the other. Um, So they engaged uh, in a positive way uh, across parties. And they engaged um, not just as a a sort of an inner-urban community campaign, but they talked to the big end of town as well. So some of the major professional and corporate names were involved and some major philanthropists, including Dame Elizabeth Murdoch, um, who came into the campaign and Dame Elizabeth was a pretty formidable character. She wasn't interested in being on the losing side of anything yeah. uh, and and so uh, as soon as they had her on their side, uh, that helped a lot. So mm. it was that multifaceted approach, it was that stamina, it was that formal approach, the diversity of the skills um, and just not giving up. A lot of these campaigns collapsed just because of you know, attrition and personality conflicts and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. They managed to keep it very positive, very professional and to maintain that consistent momentum for a long time.
0: Mm. And you give an example or a comparison between this project and the Kew Asylum, Mm. which was in Kew and was of a similar age and heritage and how that was not as successful um, in terms of preserving a substantive amount of the heritage and the architecture of the building.
1: Yes, that's Wilsmere, the old um, Q Asylum and yeah, that's right, that was a very important 19th century building in a similar part of Melbourne on the Yarra River, just on the other side uh, fur- further north and that failed campaign to save Willsmere was a real touchstone for the people in the convent campaign because that was a central equity development and as part of that... Um, All sorts of different layers of heritage and culture were just lost in that um, conversion of those 19th century buildings into apartments and and into a residential enclave. And that's exactly what um, the campaigners uh, and and the Abbotsford community didn't want for the convent.
0: Mm -mm. Um, Stuart, to close out the discussion, how has the Abbotsford convent and the way the community envisaged, envisaged it at the time, which was about an art a site of arts and culture and education and you know the children's farm um Mm. that kind of connection with nature how has that um changed or stayed the same over the years and up to i guess its function today and and what it does
1: well, it's incredible when um, people like Joe Kinross and, um, and Tony Lee were walking through and, and uh, Nigel Lewis walking through the site, even in the 90s and early noughties, they had a yeah. vision of what it would be like with markets and artist studios and you know, cafes. And it's incredible how congruent the current um, model of using the convent is with that vision. Um, Obviously, it's changed over time as different sites, different parts of the site, different buildings have been renovated and and restored and activated. And there's been this real learning by doing with the organisation getting more sophisticated about how it manages tenancies and how it manages the programming and that kind of thing. So um, even today, um, there's there's an incredible potential to activate more of the site Mm. and to um, lift the, the physical side of the site but also programming, et cetera. So it's um, it's a journey and it's a project that really continues but it's very congruent with the, the arts and culture vision that the campaign has had initially.
0: Yeah, and um, was there any kind of celebration... Was there a point in time where they're like, we did it, it's done?
1: They were very nervous about having anything like that, I think, and and I would be too, I think, being a bit sort of superstitious. And there were a whole series of small wins over that period from ninety seven to 2005 Mm. and it wasn't really until the very end and there was all sorts of setbacks and all sorts of obstacles and it wasn't until the very end where they said, you know, this is just amazing and for a very, very short moment, The campaigners had the site to themselves, they had the title, they had the keys and they looked at each other and said, this is just amazing and it will never be like this again because it's about to be handed over to the community and we won't have this as a a, a quiet personal space. It will be activated. So it was a really interesting moment.
0: Mm. Well, there's just so much we haven't touched on that I hope people can actually discover in Mm. this book, Um, and it's called The Convent, A City Finds Its Heart, which is very pertinent, isn't it? Uh, And I'm sure everyone has their own relationship to the Abbotsford Convent, and maybe if they haven't been, this might be a reason to go. Um, It's by yourself, Stuart Kells, and it's out now in all good bookstores, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. In hard copy? (laughs) Only good ones. Only the good ones, (laughs) not the bad ones. Are there any bad bookstores? No. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) You can listen to our previous chats, Stuart Kells and I about uh, book, books and bibliophilia and obsession with reading, which uh, was very fun, I've got to say. And it's been great to have you back in, Stuart, to chat about this and uh, hopefully we can talk more about our love of books in Melbourne another time.
1: I'd really like to. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you. I've been speaking with Stuart Kells, historian and author of The Convent, A City Finds Its Heart, which is out now through Melbourne University uh, Publishing and it's um, the... Migunya Press imprint, which is the posh one, isn't it? That's a very nice one. <laughs> They're all posh, but it's super posh. Uh, so do check it out.